Welcome back to the Foreign Desk with Lisa Deftari podcast. This week marks two years since the attack on a Jewish community at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh that left 11 dead and six wounded. The shooting was the deadliest attack against Jews on U.S. soil. But I wish I could say that the attack was a pivot, that as a society we have come far in learning about anti-Semitism or protecting our Jewish communities from hate attacks. But in reality, since then, anti-Semitism and hate crimes against Jews have exponentially increased. Remember Poway, Jersey City, Muncie, and a spree of violent assaults in Brooklyn, openly attacking Jews on the street. Remember the arson attack at the Chabad House in the, at the University of Delaware just a few months ago. In 2019 alone, there were 2,107 anti-Semitic incidents in total, and reported in every state except Alaska and Hawaii. That's according to the Anti-Defamation League. And 2020 was even a better year for anti-Semites who were able to piggyback their hatred for Israel on other causes under the guise of social justice or cross-sectionality. And no one uttered a word. Like the synagogue that was vandalized here in Los Angeles during the George Floyd BLM protests and another synagogue in Kenosha, Wisconsin that was similarly tagged during the protests there. But the numbers say it all. Just a few days ago, the AJC released the State of Anti-Semitism in America report, showing that nearly half of Americans, 50%, have never heard of anti-Semitism or are unfamiliar with the term. Imagine that. Half of this country cannot define anti-Semitism, let alone work to eradicate it from our nation. But we're just scratching the surface. The study also found that almost a quarter of the participants said they did not know much of, about anything about the Holocaust. That bodes well for Holocaust deniers like the mullahs in Tehran who can count on our nation's ignorant to do the same. And imagine, we still live at a time where survivors exist to tell their stories. What will they make of the Holocaust when there are no longer any firsthand sources? And lastly, according to the same study, almost a quarter of American Jewish students have said they have experienced some form of anti-Semitism on a college campus over the last five years. The same institutions that are meant to be places of enlightenment, acceptance, expanding one's perspective are now the hotbed for just the opposite. Pressure, pressuring Jewish students out of positions of leadership, bullying Jewish organizations to keep their campus presence minimal, and of course, rewriting history about Israel and the Jews in the coursework to fit their bigoted versions of the past. How did we get here and where is this all going? To answer some of these questions, we are extremely honored to bring in the State Department's special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism, Elon Carr. A complex title for an even more complex job. Welcome to the show, Mr. Carr. No question. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you for what you do and thank you for, uh, uh, for shedding uh, light on such an important issue at such a critical time. Uh, thank you for your work. I mean, it, it can't be easy. Um, this is just, you know, one of the topics that we cover, and it, it's tremendous how many incidents, you know, have happened just in the last few months. You can't even keep up. And guess what? The mainstream media doesn't keep up. Uh, looking, sure. at this, looking at this report, um, it's astounding. 50% of Americans have either not heard of anti-Semitism, and if they've heard of it, they don't even know what it means. Are you surprised at this number? Well, I think that uh, you know, anti-Semitism is a kind of is a kind of rarefied term. I mean, if you ask most Americans, are you familiar with the concept of hating Jews? I think, you know, everybody would say yes. I've, I, I know that's a thing. Um, I will say this though: America, despite rising anti-Semitism here at home, which is heartbreaking and unacceptable, 
we are still the most philo-Semitic country in the history of the world. Polls show clearly that Jews are regarded favorably here, not just not simply tolerated, but truly regarded with affection. Israel is is embraced by rank and file Americans all across the country. And so thank God America is very much a philo-Semitic country. But look, um, you know, this is a global problem, Lisa. Anti-Semitism has been rising here and across the world. You know, you mentioned Pittsburgh in your opening remarks. Uh, we just commemorated two years of that painful anniversary. And, uh, and one year ago, on the one year anniversary of the Pittsburgh massacre, I arrived in Halle, Germany to visit the scene of the Yom Kippur attack on a synagogue in Halle, Germany. I picked that date, not accidentally. I chose to arrive in Halle on the 27th of October because I wanted to send the message out as clearly as I can through conduct, not only in words, that this rise in anti-Semitism we're seeing is not only a German problem or an American problem. It is a global problem that requires, demands nothing less than a focused, coordinated global solution. And that's the kind of focus the Trump administration has been bringing to this problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's um, definitely more attention on it now. And I don't know if that's because of these numbers we're seeing. Hate crimes more uh, against Jews, I should say. Hate crimes against Jews up more than 100% in some of, I mean, New York City, New York City. It's like, you know, that's that's the the second one of Jews. So was this underreported in the past or what could we attribute these surges to? I think some of it was underreported in the past. Um, Now there's more attention to it. We've certainly brought more attention to it. I mean, part of you, you can't defeat a threat unless you you devote attention to the threat. And so part of my job is to is to shine light on this and and uh, and increase uh, the public visibility and the public outrage over it. And so, yes, I think it, it, it's more reported today. But there's something else going on, Lisa, I'll tell you. Anti-Semitism has been increasing and it's been increasing globally over the past decade plus largely because of its propagation online. Now, what we're seeing is that as these new powerful technologies, the internet, social media, um, uh, takes on a more and more central role in our lives and the lives of our young people, we're seeing all of those societal pathologies that are propagated on the internet and social media uh, become more and more acute. And so that's what we've been seeing in in the past 10 years. And what's amazing about this is that anti-Semitism comes from, you know, three disparate ideological camps. I mean, the the far right, you know, the ethnic supremacists, neo-Nazi types, the radical left that usually typically are are seen as focusing on on hatred of Israel and anti-Zionism. And of course, the militant Islamism. Those are the three camps as diverse as you can get, right? I mean, you would think that that those three ideological camps wouldn't agree on anything. They're united and they find common cause in Jew hatred. But here's what's amazing. All three are using the internet and social media to incredibly potent effect because they now have global reach like they've never had before. They can drive their their hate-filled ideologies uh, with unprecedented speed and recruit and radicalize. Uh, to a much more uh, effective extent. Let, let me give you data. I mean, a recent European study found that the period of time it takes to radicalize a person to violence, not just radical, radicalized to actual violence, is a fraction of the time when done online 
as opposed to through traditional means, you know, face-to-face -face interactions, basement, you know, smoke-filled room meetings and things like that. So now we actually have a European study that shows this. So this is real. And so what happens online doesn't stay online. It has offline effects. So I'm proud to say that last week, uh, the, the Trump administration and the United States Department of State broadcast the first ever U.S. government-sponsored conference focused on combating internet anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism and hate online. This was the first of its kind. It was broadcast last week, and now it was just released to the public, and I commend it to your audience. It's on the state.gov website. But we focused on this as never before because we understand how central this component is, online propagation, how central this is to the problem. Do you, I mean, what percentage of the problem, I mean, I, I'm not looking for numbers, but really in, in your view, just qualitatively speaking, is it ignorance that leads to anti-Semitism or is it true brainwashing, you know, uh, hatred passed down from generation to generation or online, you know, uh, indoctrination like you're alluding to? I, you know, that is the, the age-old question, right? Whenever you're dealing with with anti-Semitism or any ideology of hate, the temptation is always to say, well, they're ignorance. They're ignorant, and it's a matter of ignorance if we can just educate them. Look, there's no question, Lisa, that certain people have um, negative views of Jews because they don't know Jews. They haven't been educated about it. They've maybe heard some things and they, they don't know enough. There, there is that element. But I have to say, the, the big problem here is anti-Semitic indoctrination. This is happening through focused, coordinated efforts to recruit and radicalize people across the world and turn them against Jews. And by the way, in turning them against Jews, they're turning them against the values on which our country and many free, peace-loving countries around the world uh, were built. That's why anti-Semitism is such a a cancer that President Trump always, when he talks about it, calls it the vile poison of anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what it is, because societies that imbibe the vile poison are destroyed by it. Jews may be first, but then everyone else. And so that's what's key here. It's a matter, Lisa, of indoctrination. How is that indoctrination happening? Well, definitely online, through through social media, and, and even beyond social media, through through the fringe sites on, on the deep web, uh, where it's even worse, much worse. And so that's part of it. But there's another part of it too. Look at what's, you mentioned campuses. Look at what is happening on campuses across the United States and in Europe. When I meet with Jewish student leaders, I hear the same thing here in America as I hear in, in the UK and in France and in, in other countries, which is, which is the price for physical safety. If you're a Jewish student, the, pri the price you have to pay for physical safety is to divorce yourself completely from any mention of Israel or Zionism. That part of one's Jewish identity, one has to extirpate in order to, to, to be a student and go, go unmolested through, through a college campus. This is, let me tell you, this is unacceptable. But there's, there's that kind of indoctrination going on all the time. Let me give you one mm -hmm. example. A student at a premier university, one of the best gave me the answer sheet to his math class. Math. It says, you know, the, the derivative of so-and-so, such-and-such, the integral of so and Then it says, another day in the occupied Palestinian territory, Zionist forces murdering children. And then it goes back to math. And the kid who gave this to me, in a voice reflecting utter exhaustion, said to me, in 
math class? I can't even escape this in math? That's right. You can't even escape it in math because what is going on is a focused, coordinated indoctrination, sometimes by the, the radical left, sometimes by the far right, sometimes by militant Islam. It is global and it is an absolute threat. You know, I, this baffles me because, you know, um, so many of these groups, these rights groups, you know, that we talk about the cross-sectionality. So you stand up for gays, you have to be against Jews. If you stand up for women, you have to be against Jews. And we saw that creep the anti-Semitic um, like sentiments creep into the, the women's march with Linda Sarsour. Um, we've seen it, you know, throughout these social justice movements, you know, that, that, that tinge of, of anti-Semitism, it, it creeps in. And then you think to yourself, well, Jews are a minority also. So how do we get to the place where you can correct the narrative and say, well, if you are protecting minorities, if you are for the people, if you are protecting human rights, then how can you be against Jews? Well, that, that has to be the answer. And I'll tell you, first of all, when it comes to, to discrimination and harassment, um, which is what's going on on far too many campuses, we have to stand up and say, this is not allowed. Harassment and discrimination is not protected speech. Anti-Semitism is, but not harassment and discrimination. And so President Trump, in an unprecedented move, issued an executive order last December, and he said, "This is we're, we're done with this. And this executive order applies Title VI civil rights protections to Jewish students on college campuses, and also adopts the very important International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, or IRA, definition of anti-Semitism for the entire federal government. State Department has been using it for several years now, but President Trump adopted it for the interagency in that executive order, a groundbreaking moment. And I was at the White House when he signed it. He, he looked at the cameras and he said, let me make this very clear. If you are a university and you are promoting the discrimination or harassment of your Jewish students, you are going to lose a lot of money. This is going to be very expensive for you, he said. And I promise you there's not a single university president or chancellor did not hear that very, very clearly. Right. So the, the, the president, the administration are very serious about this. So first of all, it's about stopping discrimination and harassment. Second of all, it's about bringing the full force of law enforcement against hate crimes. Um, the Deputy Attorney General of the United States, Jeffrey Rosen, just talked about this on our conference last week. Um, and he said, look, the, the Department of Justice is focused aggressively on prosecuting anti-Semitism. When anti-Semitism rises to the level of a federal crime and, and violates federal law because of conduct that is you know, threatening or, or conspiratorial, <clears throat> the Department of Justice will act. You mentioned Brooklyn, Attorney General Barr, uh, stood in Brooklyn with the Jewish community and said the Department of Justice will not allow this. So, so then enforcement, law enforcement. But what about all the the vile anti-Semitism that that is protected? Right, it's hate speech. Hate speech is protected. Exactly. What do you do? That we've got to stand up and counter it. And here is where it is so important that that universities and that states and municipalities adopt the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. Because to confront a threat, you've got to first define the threat. Second of all, we've got to condemn it. Look, Lisa, the First Amendment protects uh, you know, speech from censorship or punishment. It doesn't protect it from condemnation. And so we've got to stand up and say, this is despicable, it's disgusting, it's un-American, and we have to be unequivocal about it. That's when it comes from the, the far right, 
you know, the kind of neo-Nazi type anti-Semitism, but also when it comes from the far left, the demonization of, of the state of Israel, the denial of Jewish peoplehood right. and, and, and Jewish national self-determination. We've got to stand up and say, this is anti-Semitism. And we've got to be clear about it. And that's why the IRA definition is so important. It's one of my top diplomatic asks. If a country hasn't adopted it, we ask that they adopt it. More and more have. And let me let me say something very, uh, a, a great piece of news. Uh, just the other day, I spoke about this yesterday in a, in a conference in Albania virtually. Albania became the first Muslim-majority country to adopt the IRA definition by formal parliamentary action that happened just a few days ago. And uh, my team and I, we just concluded a, a, a memorandum of, of understanding with the Kingdom of Bahrain's uh, King Hamad Global Center. Yes, we, want to get in, we actually want to get into that with the details oh, as well. Let me just say it adopts the IRA definition. First Arab entity to adopt the IRA definition. No, absolutely. I mean, I want to get to all your accomplishments abroad with the Trump administration because it's just tremendous. It's I say tremendous because it's it almost seems like it's easier to now work with, you know, Arab states in, in, in getting them to understand the importance of fighting anti-Semitism than it is here with some certain fringe groups here in the United States. We had the Albania story on our top 10 this morning at the Foreign Desk morning email. Uh, we also had a story today that we posted on our website, which I wanted to show the video, but it has too many expletives in it. It's showing three Jewish men wearing yarmulkes attending the uh, BLM protest in Philadelphia, and they are accosted. They are um, called uh, names, they are assaulted, and they refer to the synagogue of Satan uh, as they push them out and push them away. Um, to your point that, you know, they have hijacked these social justice movements in order to, um, you know, also use it, or I should say they take advantage of their position and platform right now. Um, and that's that's where we're at. Now, let's move over to Bahrain, because I think that that's incredibly important. Um, you know, I guess what everybody wants to know is, how do you approach a country like Bahrain, or do they come to you? How does the courtship work uh, to say, let's work together on something as important and constructive as fighting anti-Semitism? Well, first of all, the, the, the uh, groundwork was done by President Trump and the peace team. You know, this is a new Middle East, and it's a new Middle East because of the priorities of our administration. You know, I, in my very first public speech as envoy, this was now, you know, February 2019, um, I said, we are going to focus on every part of the world, and that includes the Arab world, because there is more potential in the Arab world today than ever before. And that's for a number of reasons, but a large reason is the, the leadership and the focus of President Trump to stand unequivocally and unabashedly with the state of Israel and to, to uh, contain, to roll back and to weaken the enemies of peace and freedom. And that is in the Middle East, the Islamic Republic of Iran. And that position of this administration in stark contrast to the previous administration um, <clears throat> was a game changer. And we see the results, right? Peace, pre peace erupting. Uh, between Israel and and Israel's Arab neighbors. So the groundwork was laid by the great leadership of President Trump and my boss, Secretary Pompeo. But then, <clears throat> look, the actual uh, you know match was made by, I have to say, a, a wonderful leader, uh, Rabbi uh, Abe Cooper of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, who does great work in the Arab world. He was he he knows the Bahrainis well, 
and he's the one who made the uh, the uh, match and brought us together. I remember we we uh, sat in the lobby of the of the Trump Hotel about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, and uh, we discussed this. and uh, And then it was you know it was a process of of saying, well, you know, what what do we want to do? How do we want to do it? What kind of programs do we want? And we we hammered this thing out. It was actually going to be signed earlier in the year. It was delayed, uh, you know, COVID delayed it, and various various delays, but. We got it done just last week, and and I tell you, it was, it's an absolute first uh, in the Arab world, and we're so proud to partner with great leaders uh, like uh, the Bahrainis. His Majesty King King Hamad bin Isa Al Khalifa has been an absolute visionary uh, for a Middle East based on on tolerance and affection and mutual respect between ethnic groups and between faiths. And uh, and so we're so proud of our partnership uh, with uh, with uh, His Majesty's uh, uh, Global Center uh, for Peaceful Coexistence, and I think that uh, we have some some really exciting programs on the way. Uh, speaking of on the way, um, President Trump has you know um, not only brokered uh, the Abraham Accords between a number of nations thus far, uh, and it seems like he is promising some more. Uh, let's take a listen to what he said earlier this week, and I want to get your thoughts. We have many countries wanting to come in. We're doing them one by one. We did Sudan. They wanted to do a deal. And, and that was in particular nice because they've essentially been at war with Israel for uh, a long time. I don't know if it was fighting. I don't know that. But uh, probably there's been a little bit. But certainly it's been for many years you've been officially at war with Sudan. And now it's uh, not only the deal was signed, but it's peace. So that's official. And that's nice. Yeah, we have uh, at least five that want to come in. And we'll have many more than that very soon. And when you say want to come in, you mean... Want to come into the deal. In other words, yeah, part of the peace deal. And you said Saudi... And you know what it's costing the United States? Nothing. Nothing. (laughs) I love that at the end, because that's exactly what he did. He incentivized peace. He worked around this age-old myth that the road to a future for the Middle East that's peaceful uh, and stable can only be met through a peace deal between the Palestinians and Israelis, totally worked outside of that box. Uh, and he, he brought a new future to the Middle East. And this is completely missed on the media right now. Yeah. Well, you say thought out of that box. That box was, was fraudulent from day one. Um, <clears throat> you know, we just heard a statement by the previous administration's uh, secretary of state that's been, been sent around social media. Um, you know, where uh, former Secretary Kerry said, said, it'll never happen. You'll never have peace, you know, unless you first uh, uh, <clears throat> broker a deal with the Palestinians. And, and look, this administration is committed to, to peace between Israel and the Palestinians. This administration unveiled uh, the most detailed proposal uh, for, for peace between Israel and the Palestinians that acknowledges, of course, the Jewish people's historic claims in Judea and Samaria, while at the same time acknowledging Palestinian claims. It's detailed. It, it brings billions of dollars in investment. So President Trump takes a backseat to no one in terms of his uh, emphasis of peace between Israel and the Palestinians. However, when you say that we can't progress unless you do that first, what do you do? Any negotiator knows. I mean, President Trump is a master negotiator. Anyone who knows anything about negotiation, I mean, this is negotiation, you know, freshman class negotiation, knows that when you say nothing can happen unless this happens, well, you give that side veto power. 
You basically have put, have given that one party control over the entire world. And the entire world has to wait until they decide maybe if they're going to be less intransigent. Um, that is just, you know, uh, well, it's reckless. That's just reckless is what it is. And President Trump right away said, this is nonsense. We are going to stand with Israel because Israel is one of our uh, closest and best friends on earth. We are not going to apologize for it. We're not going to lie by, by suggesting that Jerusalem isn't the capital of Israel. You know what that is? It's a lie. That's what it is. We know that Jerusalem is the capital of the Jewish people in the state of Israel. And so we are going to acknowledge the truth because peace has to be based on truth, not on fiction and, and falsehoods. And so President Trump totally changed the narrative here, uh, recognized Jerusalem as the eternal capital of the Jewish people in the state of Israel, recognized Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights, recognized that that towns, you know, Jewish towns in Judea and Samaria aren't war crimes, uh, which has been a, a calumny um, that that has been, uh, you know, calumny against against Israel for for years. Um, also said, look, U.S. tax money is no longer going to go to paying murderers. Um, the pay for slave program of the Palestinian Authority. President Trump said, "You hardworking Americans are going to fund." Uh, monthly stipends for murderers. That's what that's what has been going on for the during the previous administration. President Trump said, "Absolutely not enough is enough." Cut that off. Another thing he cut off was funding anti-Semitic textbooks that indoctrinate Lisa, indoctrinate children to hate other children. I mean, what is worse than teaching a, a beautiful innocent child to hate? to grow up and hate other innocent children. That's what the Palestinian Authority has been doing with US money. Not anymore, President Trump said enough. And so doing all of these things really broke through the impasse and allowed us to, to you know, uh, uh, first of all, uh, do what we need to do with Iran, which is end the, the largesse that the United States has been, has been uh, giving, delivering to the mullahs of Iran, but also allowed us to break through the impasse and produce real lasting peace in, in, in a region that so needs it. And, and not a cold peace. You know, I was at the White House when the Abraham Accords were signed. Let me tell you what a senior delegate of a country said, came up to me. I don't wanna say which one, it was a private conversation, but he, he came up to me and he said, he said, how great is this? We are gonna do great things together. Don't think this is gonna be a cold peace. This won't be a cold peace. We are gonna do great things together. You know, you get choked up. And but that's what's right. going on. Right. And it would not have happened mm -hmm. without the leadership of President Trump and his peace team. Yeah, I actually had the opportunity to be there also on the lawn. And, um, you know, we did um, an, an episode of our podcast to, together with Avi Berkowitz uh, the following day. Uh, and I, I mean, the, the one thing I could, he's there, the, the entire team, I mean, Amazing. The one thing I can say about the ceremony um, and, and to compare it with perhaps Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin's handshake, um, which I was much younger, but just looking back to that, or this was so genuine. And uh, you can see the excitement and the optimism, yeah. more, more importantly than anything else, um, was there. This is truly significant. And then to walk away and see Nancy Pelosi call it in, in, in an event on the White House lawn with no social distancing. Um, you know, maybe I want to take a moment of your time so you can tell us just the bullet points as to why this is so significant and what the implications will be decades down the road. 
Well, you know, I think this is a, a, a great moment of unity uh, for a country. You know, whether somebody is conservative or liberal, Republican or Democrat, right, left, peace is something we all want. Uh, peace is something that, that America aspires to. It's in, it's in our DNA as Americans. And here we see <clears throat> peace, real peace, not cold peace, not the handshake with Arafat, like, like you talked about where, you know, uh, you know, Prime Minister Rabin had to, you know, held his nose to do that. But this is real affection. And, uh, and you saw it, you saw it in the speeches and you see it in the programs, <clears throat> the, the economic agreements that they're signing now and the synagogue they're building in, in, uh, in, in Abu Dhabi and the kosher restaurants they're putting. I mean, it, this is just, re it's real affection. And, uh, and it's, it's incredibly moving. And no matter this, look, this isn't about, this isn't about a politics or about party. It's about policy and it's about good policy. It's about good policy that makes the world a better place, that makes Israel and the Jewish people safer, that makes the Arab people safer and stronger and brings, br builds bridges that so desperately needed to be built. And look, we've got to acknowledge the truth here. It was President Trump's negotiating skills and policy perspective on standing with Israel that brought this about. Also, our very, this is a critical aspect of it. You know, the, the chief state sponsor of both terrorism and anti-Semitism is the Islamic Republic of Iran. We spent eight years empowering them through the JCPOA, this, this right. disgrace, uh, this Iran nuclear deal where, where we, we appeased this, this bloodthirsty regime and not anymore. Now, you know, punishing sanctions, their, their uh, uh, currency is in a free fall. They don't have petroleum for their cars. I mean, we are absolutely saying we, you know, we have nothing against the people of Iran, the great people of Iran, but we will not tolerate a regime that threatens uh, genocide against the Jewish people, that destabilized the region, that through its proxies is responsible for a half a million dead Syrians. Where is the outrage, Lisa? A half a million dead Syrians through its properties. And so we said, look, you know, is it, we are not going to accept this. And so it was a combination of, of, of um, rolling back Iran's malign influence and standing unequivocally with the Jewish people in the state of Israel and with our Arab allies that allowed this to happen. And so this is really, we've got we've to, all of us, no matter what our politics are, we've got to say thank you, President Trump. Mm -hmm. Thank you. President Trump and, and his team, including Secretary Pompeo, for, for you know, doing the undoable and for you know, realizing the unthinkable. Uh, yeah. And this is really a wonderful moment that we can all celebrate. Absolutely. And, and you know, uh, speaking of celebrating, the, the people of Iran uh, do acknowledge um, President Trump. They've thanked him many times um, for standing behind them, their movement, their protests for killing Qasem Soleimani. And of course, the regime is doing the opposite. So it hasn't been lost on the people. Uh, but Speaking of good policy, President Trump refers to a, long, a list of countries that will also like to join the Abraham Accords yeah. a few days away from an election. If President Trump is not reelected, what do you foresee happening to the Abraham Accords, to the countries who are in queue to enter the Accords and for the future of the Middle East? Well, you know, look, um, before President Trump, you know, peace was not built between Israel and the UAE, between Israel and Bahrain, between Israel and Sudan, 
and between Israel and, and Muslim countries that are not Arab, between Israel and, and Kosovo, right? We didn't have this happen. It's happening now. It's not happening now by accident. It's not happening now because, you know, the, the stars are aligned. It's happening because we have leadership in the United States that made it happen and made it happen through, through a peerless negotiating skills and through the right policies for the Middle East, not the policies of the past. This is a, a 180 degree change from the policies of the past. And so, you know, yeah, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, it's, it's we knew, you know, we've known over the last four years that these are the right policies to do, to, to you know, to exact punishing sanctions on Iran, to stand with, with the state of Israel and our Arab allies. Um, we knew that was the right thing to do, but now, we have very clear evidence that it's the right that it was the right thing to do. The results are, you know, are incredible and beautiful and wonderful. And so, you know, I think it's 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 speaks for itself. And and so, you know, we've got to uh, make sure that that our policies are are uh, are uh, adhered to because uh, why why would we want to abandon? Do you think uh, they will be adhered to? Well, I can't comment on election results and on candidates, but, but um, you know, uh, President Trump did this. Uh, you know, the previous administration didn't get this done. In fact, in fact, the region went, became farther uh, from, from peace. If you look at the disasters in Syria, all of our gains in Iraq uh, abandoned, um, <clears throat> you know, the empowerment of, of the mullahs of Iran, all of the things that happened, I mean, it, it, was, it was wreckage. It was absolute wreckage. And so the, the previous administration didn't get it done. We got it done. And uh, we got it done again through, through force of will, expert negotiating skills, and the right policies for the Middle East. And so, you know, I hope, I hope our whole country sees that so that we stay with these policies and not abandon these policies. You know, with everything that you listed, um, and this is going to be my final que question to you, and um, I ask you this because your ears are to the ground. You see this day in and day out. With everything that you listed that President Trump has accomplished for the state of Israel, for Jews living in Israel and in the United States, for combating anti-Semitism together with yourself um, and Elham Kwanim, and how, how can people in this country call him an anti-Semite? And why do Jews in this country vote against him well first of all no no one normal calls him an anti-semite i mean you know you've got people fringe fringe you know pe fringe people who do that but you know look one we can all disagree we're americans disagreement is is part of what makes our country great and so you know i have no problem with people saying well you know i disagree with the president i you know i i'm a member of the administration i hear that all the time well we you know i don't like what you're doing here or there okay you know what um, I, tell me why. I, I like to hear. I want to hear you out. You know, maybe you'll change my mind. And we we have a back and forth. I I respect differences of opinion, and I think um, you know all of us in in America need to respect differences of opinion. But to to insult the president of the United States, um, you know, I'll tell you something. I, I I was a I campaigned against then Senator Obama. I was a surrogate uh, for for uh, John McCain. But when President Obama was elected, I said, you know, he's my president. Our, my country elected him my president. I, I tried very much not to have that happen, but that's what happened. And so, you know, we salute the commander in chief. We say, yes, sir, you have our support. Now we can disagree. We can criticize policies. Sure. And I did, certainly. 
um, the Iran deal, I, I, I was, you know, so many of us realized what a disgrace this was for our country, but, but we stood behind him as president. And, you know, look, uh, when, when, you know, we, we, we have a president who's working very, very hard, who's produced incredible results uh, in, you know, in the Middle East and other parts of the world. I mean, my God, taking on China, never been done before. Uh, we've been taken, we've been absolutely, uh, you know, the, the shirts off our back uh, has been taken. I mean, we've taken to the cleaners here and, and he stood up and he said, he said, no, we're not going to have that happen anymore. And so, you know, we can, we can support policies. And I think, I think that's very important. Um, those people who call them names, these aren't serious people. These anyone who calls him names is 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 basically childish, and uh, and I think uh, I think that's that's not really what we should be doing in America. No, that's definitely true, and I hope that uh, people heed your advice about uh, saluting the commander in chief come Tuesday. Uh, very very important election, especially when it comes to foreign policy, and I and I can't emphasize that enough. I know that you know that very well, and I thank you for your service to this country. I thank you for for uh, incredible incredible years that will definitely go down in history with regards to the Middle East, with regards to fighting anti-Semitism, uh, and I thank you, and I thank. Thank you for being on our podcast. And for those of you who would like to subscribe to my daily email, you can go to foreigndesknews.com. And to subscribe for our uh, podcast, go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari, and you can see our weekly podcasts there. See you next time.